Good evening to all of you. We're, uh, yeah, we're in the second part of our mini-series, and as I was preparing, I guess they think I'm getting old and leaving me a stool up here. Maybe I'll get tired, we'll see. As I was preparing this, uh, this sermon for today, yesterday evening, and uh, I was really thinking, and after reading a lot of the text that we're going to be looking at today, I was really coming to a conclusion that this is all a bit meaningless, a bit, uh, a bit like vanity. So I decided we're just going to sit today for 40 minutes in kind of a contemplative thought process and just kind of maybe uh, enjoy the meaninglessness of this day. Some of you will get that. The rest of you will by the end. I thought about actually like sitting down and like seeing how long it took before somebody just was like, okay, this is weird, I'm leaving. So today we are in the second part. Solomon's wisdom is what we've been talking about. If you didn't catch it, we're in Ecclesiastes today. It's a very cheery, uplifting book. Last week we started with Proverbs, and we're doing Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. All of these are accredited to Solomon and uh, great depictions of his wisdom, but in very different and very unique ways. And last week we concluded with uh, Proverbs, in a nutshell, to kind of sum up the whole sermon, um, that it offers two paths throughout the Proverbs. We see two possible paths we can choose, and Sam depicted it, uh, or kind of uh, personified it, if you will, as Lady, um, Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. And this is because in the Proverbs... We see this kind of feminine uh, figure depicted as, or wisdom uh, depicted as this, as this feminine figure. And the book of Proverbs gives us a guideline in how to choose wisdom in any given situation. Uh, not, it's, and we're not meant to take it literal, every single bit of every proverb, because otherwise we see a lot of contradictions, as we saw, as Sam pointed out. Uh, but we're meant to kind of see what, what, what am I supposed to apply here. So it's just kind of something to help us, to give us guidelines on how we navigate through our lives and how to choose the better of the two. Because we see, again, this, fooling, this, this folly and foolishness on one side and wisdom and godliness on the other side. And this is given through these small nuggets of truth, or proverbs, as they're also known. And also we looked at a poem that we, that, he, that we see in the proverbs, and each one kind of holds its own value in itself. And now moving into Ecclesiastes, we see kind of a really different form of writing, a very different style, and, we'll, and a very different kind of angle that he's taking. How many of you have read the book of Ecclesiastes? Yeah, the people who laughed at the beginning. It's an interesting book. It's a hard book. It's one that can take us by surprise if you're reading through the Bible and then come across this book by accident. But what is Ecclesiastes all about? My hope today is to kind of give you guys an overview. We're not going to be able to get into everything. It's a 12-chapter book, so I only have so much time, unfortunately. Unless you guys want to stay overnight, and we can really get into it. Uh, so because I only have so much time, we can only keep kind of an overview, but my hope is that you'll have a better understanding of the book, you'll have a better desire to read it, and when you read it, you'll have a better understanding of what is actually being said there, so that you're not overwhelmed, you're not taken back by some of the kind of more bizarre statements, 
But really, okay, here's the kind of core of what's going on. And so that my hope is that I believe it's a very important book and a very powerful book, and it's one that personally has impacted my life greatly. It really redirected me back to God in a new way, and it may not seem like that if you just read through it once, but if you really study it and try to understand it, what is happening in this book, I believe it will be a help to you. So even if you have read it, my hope is you'll read it again. If you haven't, that you'll read it for the first time. But what is Ecclesiastes all about? It's certainly... There's more than one answer to that question. It's a book that's been analyzed, maybe overanalyzed, again and again throughout uh, the history by both Christian and non-Christian people who have kind of examined this book. It's, again, a very peculiar book, maybe definitely unique in the Old and New Testament. But I would say as I read it, I see Ecclesiastes being a man's search for the meaning of life. What is it all about? What is life really about? And not just any man, but we're, look, we're talking about Solomon here. And according to scriptures, we saw, as I said last week in the introduction, this is the wisest man that's ever lived or ever will live according to scriptures. God gave him a very unique level of wisdom in understanding the world around him. And this book is a search for the meaning of life. And it's meant to be thought-provoking to challenge us, to kind of open our eyes in new ways and to see things differently and to look at the things around us in new ways. And it's meant to be a little antagonizing. It's intentional. It offers insights and wisdom from a man who truly has a great understanding. He he is a wise man and he gives us his findings through not only his wisdom as an outsider or only as in his observations, but also through a long life filled with every kind of experience. So he's got hands-on with a lot of this stuff. He didn't just observe it, he went in all the way, which is why it's a very unique book because he really dives into some really sinful stuff in order to really understand what is the point of life Where can we find meaning? In this book, we're given a glimpse of some seemingly paradoxical truths. As you read it, you'll be like, this this doesn't really make sense, as we also saw in Proverbs. Some paradoxical truths found all around us because we live not in a perfect world. I know that might be a surprise, might be a shock to some of you. It's not a perfect world. And this kind of addresses some of that. We see that good things happen to bad people that don't deserve it, and bad things happen to good people. We see that we can work really hard our whole lives and apply ourselves, and in the end, we're left with nothing and never really reach our goals that we want to. We leave naked as we came, no matter how hard, no matter how much we gain. So the question then is, what if any value or meaning can we hope to get out of this life that we put so much into, what's the point? And we, I think, can, of course, relate to this. A lot of you are students. You're in that kind of contemplating the world state of, of life. And we can relate to this in our own seeking to know what it's all about. We are always seeking some kind of meaning, some kind of purpose in everything that we apply ourselves to. And here we have a book that goes in deeper and more profoundly and more experiential than we would ever have the means to do, which is one of the great benefits of this book. It's something I hope will encourage you to read it. We want to know what it's all about, and we want to know the ways of God as Christians, right, and how they apply to the world that we live in. No matter how much 
we seek this, though, as Solomon will discover in this book, we can never fully know the true and full meaning of life. We can never truly fully know all of God's ways, why he does everything the way he does, why things don't seem to make sense. It's just because it's a fallen world that we live in. This, in my view, is the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes, to remind us as we look at the contradictions of this fallen world that we live in, this messed up world that we find ourselves in, and as we seek to find meaning in it and understand the nature of God and how it applies to the world we live in, we'll always fall short of this impossible goal. And, but rather than kind of lose all hope and truly say it is all meaningless, vanity, that we would then come to the conclusion that we see in the book and choose to instead to rise in faith and put our trust in God above ourselves. And my goal again today, my hope, is to give you this broad overview of the book and hopefully give you a hunger to want to know more, want to dive into it deeper. And with this, I hope, first of all, again, that you'll actually read it. Even if you have read it, that you'll read it again. And second, that you'll have a greater appreciation and an understanding of the purpose of this book of Ecclesiastes. So as not to be, again, left feeling hopeless as you read it, but hopeful, encouraged, with a deeper and clearer view of what's really going on in the world that we live in and what the world around us truly has to offer when we go that direction to seek purpose in our life and to find meaning what it really has to give us. So let's start with the title, Ecclesiastes. It's actually a rendering from the Greek and the Latin, and it's translated from the title given in verse 1-1. Ecclesiastes 1-1, the words of the preacher or teacher, depending on the translation, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So Ecclesiastes is really a type of assembly that's being addressed by someone. It's what this, really, this word means. It's talking about, so, which is why it's often translated preacher or teacher, as it's in German. The book is just called Preacher, basically. Here in verse 1, I think we also see a clear evidence that it's Solomon that wrote it, because we see as he is the son of David and he's the king. And later on in, verse, or in chapter 1 and chapter 2, it talks about him being the wisest, who's the wisest king that's ever been in Jerusalem. Uh, we also see mentions of it being the richest, and all of those are attributed only to Solomon. There is no other person that could fit this bill. So it's Solomon, though it's not really official because there's no actual name. It's technically an anonymous book. Uh, he's just called Preacher, but it seems pretty clear, and there's not a whole lot of good debate, I think, that uh, it would be anyone else. This book uh, may have been put together, though, after Solomon's death, because the preacher or the teacher is definitely an old man speaking at the end of his life. He talks a lot about uh, aging and kind of reaching the end of his life, and at the conclusion of the book, we see it kind of shift as, as somebody has kind of put in something speaking about the teacher, talking kind of about or addressing what you've just looked, listened to. So it definitely was, could have been put together after him. Ecclesiastes, like Proverbs, is wisdom literature, uh, one of a few books, we're going through most of them through, with uh, 
the series of Solomon. The, only, the other one is Job, which we won't have time to get into. Uh, but like Proverbs, it's wisdom literature, but it's laid out in a very different way to the collection of Proverbs and kind of poems that are found in the book of Proverbs. In Ecclesiastes, we also see a lot of Proverbs in a traditional sense, these kind of nuggets of truth in the way it's written. But the Proverbs in the text are clustered together and kind of organized by these different units and as they would be in a given lecture. So this is some kind of lecture that's being kind of given, and so we see that kind of structure. It's not as, the Proverbs are a bit more random. As Sam mentioned, there's a lot of people who have tried to show the, how they're kind of organized, but it's hard to really cling on to that. There's a lot of kind of randomness in the feel. Uh, but this one doesn't really have that. It has a flow through the entire text, uh, a kind of unifying plot line that organizes everything together, keeps it kind of flowing through. And um, everything kind of falls into these three main categories. So as you're reading through this book, you can kind of keep this in mind. There are three main categories that you'll find as you're reading it. The first is recollection. So the recollections of the preacher or the teacher as he's kind of recalling experiences that he's, um, that he's gone through or things that he's seen or things that he's observed He's kind of recalling things. The next is reflections, where he draws conclusions based off the things that he's recollected or observed. And then we see, lastly, these mood pieces. And these are kind of poems. There's a few good, I think, some famous poems. Chapter 3 has one of the most famous poems um, in the Bible. And we see these mood pieces, these poems, expressions of emotion. And a lot of it is frustration anger, dissatisfaction as he's kind of finding that nothing truly gets the satisfaction that he's seeking, no matter which way he goes. And he's also, throughout, we see this kind of underlying tone of death as he's facing the inevitability of his approaching, his appending death, as he's definitely an old man. The book is a collection of maybe one or multiple addresses that he would have given to a large crowd of people. And we know from the text that, and I think this is very relevant for us, that it's a mixture of people. We see all kinds of different people that he is kind of connecting with and addressing in, at different points. So there's, it really co it covers everybody. So it would have been the rich and the poor. We would have seen the foolish and the wise. We would have seen philosophers to the everyday working men and women, those who were in the fields, those who were you know, picking the grain, whatever it would be. We had every kind of people that he was addressing. So the preacher stands up to address the crowd. A hush falls over them. This is the wisest king that's ever lived. And he's done some amazing things in his time in the throne. He stands up. Everybody's eager to hear the wisdom for this great and wise king, seasoned from old age and experience. And his very first word, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. Vanity, vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So that's an encouraging start. The preacher's probably met now with some raised eyebrows and confused looks. Okay, came all the way from like my village to hear this and... I could, have, I could have figured that one out on my own, I think. 
I use both of these translations. I'll get to that in a minute. But either translation gives a pretty cheerful introduction to the book, doesn't it? If you're looking for an encouraging book and you're like, man, I'm feeling down, God, and, and you just kind of do the, I'm going to open my Bible and there's Ecclesiastes, you might not make it past verse 2 before you're like, this maybe isn't the book I was looking for. I'm going to keep looking. Well, the reason I give both of these translations is because we're going to mostly be quoting from the NIV. That's what we usually use here in Calvary Chapel. But... I think it's important that you, we really take some time here to understand this word translated meaningless and vanity, because it's a very prominent word throughout the text. The word is hevel, literally meaning vapor. It's important when we're reading that we understand this, because it's used 38 times in these 12 chapters. In fact, more than half of its use in the entire Bible is found only here in this book, not a lot of people were talking about meaninglessness or vanity. Now, the word vapor, again, that's the, the literal translation, um, is translated, again, in the NIV as meaninglessness or meaningless. But I find that a bit ambiguous. And I think that if you just read the NIV and you don't have any understanding of this word, it can kind of lose its weight and lose what it really means because the word actually kind of goes with the text. It flows with the text and its meaning kind of changes as it goes, um, which is why I like, I like the word vanity better. I think it suits it better. Of course, vanity not as in like uh, a vain person, but as a worthless or futile attempt at something. It's something that's worthless or useless or futile. It serves no greater purpose. So it's, it's like meaningless, but I think it has a bit more of the weight. The truth is it's a, it's a very difficult word to understand if we just, especially we just looked at like that first verse where it's used and most of the verse is just that word. What is really meant by this, this word? We, don't, we can't really get there unless we take into account the entire book itself. As I mentioned, it's something that kind of moves with the text. The literal translation is vapor, but that doesn't really work. We can't do a literal translation into English because that would be silly. It doesn't really fit. He's not literally saying that life is vapor. It's not literally vapor. It's figurative. So we have to kind of try to seek the weight of what he's really trying to say. As we go through the kind of overview of the book, and later, maybe tonight when you're reading it, reading through the book yourself, I hope that you'll kind of see that it's meant to place an image in your mind. It's meant to give us something visual to try to hold on to, to grasp. As we're considering the pursuits of this life, as we're considering what we apply ourselves to, they amount to what is likened to a vapor. It gives us the feeling of something fleeting, elusive. It's a wisp. It's nothing you can hold on to. You can grab at it, but it's, you can't hold vapor in your hands. It's there and then it's gone. The word's meanings, and again, the word's meaning kind of molds as you move through the text. And so we see this kind of 
vapor this of life when we're talking about how short life is, how fleeting our life is, how our life is over in the blinking of an eye. But we also see it as this kind of thing that if we, when we're seeking pleasure, when we're seeking to gain, to gain wealth or whatever it might be or a career, that we're kind of scooping at something that we can never truly hold on to. And so it kind of molds with the text. So just to put that in your mind as you're reading this in the next week or so, that you are really kind of grasping what is it, what is he really saying there? It's not just meaningless. It's like a vapor. It's something that's wispy and gone and can't be held onto. So, there's not really a, a perfect translation of that word, but it's important that we really attempt to grasp it again as we're going through the book. The book begins with this cheerful disposition about life. It's utterly meaningless, a vanity of vanities. Now, I think when we hear that, if we were in the crowd that day, we might want to immediately ask the obvious question, well, how on earth did you come to this gloomy conclusion? How did you get there? You know, it's like he's at the end of his life. It's like you hopefully didn't start there, right? You weren't born that pessimistic, I hope. How did you get to this conclusion? Well, that is basically the book of Ecclesiastes. The answer to that question. So he jolts them. It's meaningless. Life, everything it's all meaningless. And here's how I know. Here's what I found in all my years, all my experiences, everything that I've sought. Solomon has set out to answer the ultimate question. Of course, the answer is 42, but he hadn't gotten that yet. That didn't come for a few years. Ecclesiastes is an old man addressing a crowd filled with every kind of people. And he is in dull in indulging them or giving them his conclusions after a long life of seeking meaning and purpose of mankind. What is the point? And through all of the variety of pursuits that span almost every conceivable philosophy found under the sun, every conceivable philosophy we see in this text, fatalism to egotism to moralism, all found here, no matter what your pursuit is, his point is going to be, it's meaningless in itself. Now that, I want to just also give you that term, under the sun, it's one you'll also see a lot in the text as you're going through it. What does it mean, under the sun? This refers to the state of things. Again, we're talking about the fallen world, that it's not a perfect world. He's not talking about heaven. He's not talking about a paradise. He's talking about the things that actually happen, the reality we live in under the sun. It's not a secular perspective. This is often, I believe, misunderstood when they read that. Under the sun, well, it's, it's a, a secular perspective. Because Solomon, although he does give us a man's perspective without God many times throughout the text, he always parallels it with a godly wisdom and a god-oriented view of seeing things. So we kind of will see a lot of para- you see a lot of parallels between these two. Like we see in, in Proverbs of this kind of the way of folly and the way of wisdom. He speaks often of kind of the things that he's observed under the sun and he's he has watched how things are. And he sees that there is wisdom to be gained in this life. 
There is something here. There is hope. There is good things, but that the world itself is unbalanced, unfair, and thus amounts to vanity in itself. In verse 13 through 14 of chapter 1, he says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So I want to look now at some of the vanities of life he discovers through his quest for meaning. There's so much more. I had like 15 pages of notes that I've condensed down to some amount of pages. You'll see. Hope you guys are comfortable. Uh, but I think it's good to kind of look at these vanities because everything else you read throughout, because he's going to go, he also, towards the end of the book, he goes through a lot of um, examples that he's observed with specific situations. He goes through some kind of proverb type writing. He writes some poetry. But all of it kind of fits into what he sees here at the beginning in his quest to find out the meaning of life, to seek where you can truly be happy, truly be satisfied. And these are kind of the vanities of life he discovers and kind of what he concludes. So the first one I want to look at is kind of what we see right at the beginning of chapter 1, especially uh, verse 4 through 11. We won't read all of it. I just want to say that this is the vanity of the natural world, the vanity of the natural world, of the sciences, if you will. And there's, I just want to kind of make as a side note, which something I always found really fascinating about this book, is that there are a lot of actual scientific kind of facts within this that uh, weren't really officially known at that time. I mean, he talks about the water cycle and how that kind of how the water cycle works, how the jet stream and how the wind returns back to its flow around the earth. It's quite interesting. He even has an image of what appears to be a circulatory system, like the blood that pumps and flows throughout the body, which wasn't known until the 1800s, if I'm correct. I'm not a doctor. Uh, and so it's really interesting. Some, he really sought to kind of really understand nature went out and spent time to try to grow in his knowledge. But his conclusion in all of it, after all of his pursuits of nature, is that the eye is never satisfied, is the way he puts it. The ear is never filled. We never, it's a never enough. There's always more to be explored, always more to see, more to discover. And you, as an individual, seeking to kind of grasp at that, you'll, again, it's like vapor which is why we have to understand that word. It's not just meaningless. It's like vapor. It's like you're trying to hold on to something that you can never really grab. It keeps going on round and round. That's how he puts it. Really like. It just keeps going and going and going. There's never an end to it. And his point in the end is that it's going to keep on going long after we're gone. I'm going to die, but everything else, all of nature is just going to keep on going. The world's just going to keep on spinning. It's just going to keep existing long after me. I can't fully grasp it. I can't fully, there's not a true satisfaction in it, uh, in itself, because I'm just grasping at the wind. Now, the sciences are a noble pursuit. It's a good thing. But in themselves, we can find no true end of satisfaction. It is all vanity. It's futile to try and conquer your understanding of nature. It's like chasing after the wind. You can 
grasp at it, you can never truly hold it in your hands. There will always be more to know. That's his conclusion when it comes to the vanity of nature. The second is the vanity of pleasure, possessions, and accomplishments. Let's look at pleasure. When it comes to pleasure, Solomon truly has us all way outdone. He really sets himself to it. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. This man was unfathomably wealthy compared to anything we can relate to. He had 1,000 women at his beck and call between his wives and concubines. When this guy threw a party, it was a party. Like that we can't even, I mean, I just try to wrap my brain around what a Solomon party looked like. It was probably like, yeah, we're going to party for like two and a half years and just really go all out. I mean, this guy had everything at his, at his call. The best of the best. And he says, but this also proved to be meaningless or vanity or vapor. It was never enough. It was never truly satisfying. It was like grasping at a vapor, chasing the wind. People today seek to numb themselves with pleasure. That's definitely nothing that has gone away with drugs, with alcohol, with sex. But Solomon had it way, way more advanced than anything we can fathom. His conclusion, what does pleasure really accomplish? Nothing. What does it accomplish? It is all like chasing the wind. There's no sex that can be pleasing enough, no drug that can be numbing enough to forever bring you to a state of real fulfillment. And this guy really sought it out. He said, I I applied myself to it. Come, let's try this out. That just... What a crazy decision to make in your life. But that's the goal of many people still today, to either numb themselves or to seek some kind of happiness through pleasure. And the reality is, of course, it accomplishes nothing of the sort. In the end, we're often emptier than when we started. The next thing he sought out was possessions and accomplishments. Again, this guy had a lot of wealth. So he built for himself massive structures and gardens and stables for thousands of, tens of thousands of horses. You can still see the remains of his stables today. He also built the temple for the Lord and mighty and great palace. He amassed tremendous wealth, not only as king, but in the private sector as well. It was as though the streets themselves were paved with gold because of the vast wealth of Solomon. A whole country got blessed because he was so rich. Just the trickle-down effect brought the whole country up. The very greatest we could ever hope to achieve in this life, ever hope to possess, would pale in comparison. And yet, his conclusion in chapter 2, he says, I hated all the things I had toiled under the sun because I must leave them to someone who comes after me. 
He actually really, he goes on with that. He really hated it, hated everything he built. It was all stupid and meaningless. It's basically his kind of rant. Basically, you can gain the whole world, have more than anybody else, but you're still going to die and somebody else is going to take it. <laughs> and they're probably going to do horrible things. He had really rough, some rough sons. I'm sure he was really maybe fearful, like, oh God, I've done so much and they're just going to go out and destroy everything. That's the point. You can gain everything, but it all will just fade away. Naked we come and naked we go. He even says also, he points out that with much riches comes much stress. That a poor man may not always eat, but he'll sleep better than the rich man who spends his nights worrying about his riches. So even when you're experiencing the riches, you're still just kind of worrying about your money. How much better it is to do as Jesus commands us. It is better to store up treasure for yourselves in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where nothing, it can't, it's not taken from you when you die, it's waiting for you. To gain the whole world but to not have Christ is to enter into eternity with nothing but to follow him, to serve Christ now, even if you have nothing, is to enter, enter, enter into eternity with great riches. Take the world, take the riches, give me Christ. Everything else is vanity, chasing after the wind. The next is vanity of our work, which also applies to what we gain. But I also think this needs to be applied to careers because that's, we're in Germany, it's a big topic here. Your career, a lot of you are still students and so it's a very relevant topic in this room. What are you going to do? Where are you going? What's your plan? And maybe you're driven by a pursuit to be as successful as you possibly can, to be maybe even the top in your field in whatever career it is that you're seeking. As soon as I have my degree and get that job that I want, then I'll have peace in my life. Then I'll have satisfaction. Then I'll be truly living out my purpose. But the truth is, it won't. Be careful in finding your purpose, your identity in your work alone. It's okay to work well. We want to work heartily. We want to work with wisdom. We want to work with integrity. We want to work unto the glory of God. So we want to work well. I'm not saying don't, you know, slack off. Well, you know, preacher said, so whatever. I'll do what I want. See how it's, you know, it's all meaningless. No, no fatalist views after you leave here today. But in the, on the other side, really, be careful if that's your only, if that's your main identity and your purpose is only in who you are as your job, which is, again, I, f I find quite prevalent more and more, you know, when you meet somebody, hi, your name, what do you do? And that's who they are. But we don't want to, not only for ourselves, but we also don't want to identify other people just simply by their careers. The wisdom of Solomon kind of rings out still today that this is a vanity. It's not truly fulfilling. It's not truly who you are. It's not something you'll ever find complete satisfaction in. And if it's about money, he says in chapter 5, verse 10, whoever loves money never has money enough. 
Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless or vanity. Now that's whether it's about gain. You're like, well, no, it's not about gain. I want security. I want security for my future. It's the same thing. It'll never be enough. You'll never feel fully secure. It always, you always need a more in your account, more in your account. And you just want to amass this great wealth, which he also says that the wicked amass great wealth for the righteous. So if you're a wicked person today, you can send that my way. No, just kidding. It's, it, whatever, whatever it's about, if it's about money, if it's about gain, it'll never be enough. We don't want to have that as our identity. Maybe it's about work itself. And in chapter 2, verse 22 through 25, he says, What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? What do you get for everything that you're pouring into, all that hard work? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. If you've ever had a really stressful job, you're never really off. It goes with you when you sleep. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Okay, that sounds, sounds good. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? Without him, who can find enjoyment? Who can find joy? Who can find pleasure? Whether it's in your career or in your gains, and you're not going to find any satisfaction apart from God. You can't even eat and enjoy a meal. We did. We had burgers on Friday. I enjoyed it. God was with me, as he often is when I enjoy a cheeseburger. To the one who strives to work hard, they find in the end only pain and anxiety if that's the means to their end. But to the one who does all to the glory of God, knowing that everything you have, all of your abilities, all of the wisdom that you have, you may think that you just put the work in, but it is God who gave you the ability to put that work in, to achieve and accomplish what you've accomplished in your career. When you really truly understand that and come before him with this openness that I and thankfulness in your heart, I believe you will find joy and satisfaction through your labor. But only then. Otherwise, it's like striving after the wind. You can never truly hold on to it. The next, meaninglessness, the vanity of our mortality. This is very prevalent in the book. A lot. In chapter 3, in chapter 9, in chapter 11 through 12. He talks a lot about death. Again, he's definitely an older man reaching the end of his life. So he uh, has this in his mind. And he points out that the good man and the sinner, the rich, the poor, the wise, the foolish, all will meet the same fate. All will meet the same fate. Kind of uh, makes you feel like, what's the point, right? It's all meaningless. No matter who you are, no matter how you live, we're all reaching the same end. Death comes to us all. And furthermore, he kind of takes it to the next step to really kind of stab in the hopelessness. Not only does everybody meet the same fate of death, but we're all forgotten. Time is like this river that washes you away. When enough time has passed, who will remember you? I thought about this. I thought, you know, who can, who can tell me like something personal about their great-grandfather? 
I don't, I know he fought in the war. I think that's about all I know. We're not only do we all meet the same fate, but we're all forgotten. It's really hopeful. Hopeful point for us to end on today. No. This life is like a vapor. And to have a view that this life is all we have is despair. Or as Paul says, if, hey, if Christianity isn't right, I'm paraphrasing, then we're the greatest fools of all. We should just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Because no, there's no point. It's only despair. It's only hopelessness because there is no, there's only one guarantee that death will find us all. If that's our only view of life, it is despair. Remember, again, this is an old man who has seen and done it all. And he's facing this inevitable, impending death that's coming for him. And at that moment, any of us would ponder the meaning of our existence. What was it all about? What did I accomplish? What happens to everything that I've accomplished, everything I've worked for, all the degrees, all the study time, all of the work that I've put in, will I be remembered at all? Will I have a lasting effect on the world around me? Will, have I made a mark? How many of us have wondered that, pondered that? When we think about how short our time here is, it feels like such Vanity, so futile. Solomon offers us an old man's perspective and the advice to those who are still in their youth. In verse 1, and actually from halfway through 11 all the way to the very end, to the very conclusion of the book, almost to the end of chapter 12, he's going through of what, what you have to look forward to when you're getting old. It's uh, poetic but uh, very depressing. But here in verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, Remember your creator. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. He's saying, it's going to get worse. You think it's bad now. Wait till you're old. And again, he gives this like, really, you should read it. It's great. It's the very poetic depiction of losing your eyesight. He's like the sun and moon are dimmed and he kind of, paints this whole picture of, of somebody who's just growing old. The, the legs don't work like they used to. I can't get a good night's sleep. Everything, he says, the birds just wake me up. as you know, the first chirp of the birds and I'm up. I can't get a good night's rest. It's rough being old is what he's saying. So don't forget your creator now while you're young because it's going to be the thing that sustains you to the end. It's conclusion to all of this. Remember your creator. Remember who God is. Even goes as far as to say, hey, go ahead, seek to enjoy life. I did. Try pleasure. But remember who God is. Remember your creator because you will still have to give an account to him as judge. Everything that you choose to do in your time and your youth, you will give an account for. Go ahead, enjoy it, but you will give an account. So remember your creator. Remember who God is. And our hope in this, and one of my favorite verses in this book, that I, I really do love this book, is Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, 
He's made everything beautiful in its time. Everything has a season. But we also have something, a great gift of God, eternity that lies within our heart that we know we don't need to despair. This isn't the end. We can trust in our creator. Without Christ, we have only to gain what we can from this life. But in our relationship with Jesus, this life is not our best. This isn't the shining star of our moment. Maybe you're an athlete and you're feeling really strong. You're at your peak. You're like, hey, this is it, man. I'm feeling good. I'm at the top of my game right now. No. There's nothing in this life that will compare. This is all a dark shadow of the glory of what's to come. Every moment of beauty that we experience is meant to point us to the greater truth to come. We have eternity in our hearts. Everything is beautiful in its time. But as Christians, our greatest time, our perfect moment, our ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment and true beauty is to come in the next life. And that is our hope to hold on to. Remember your creator and remember your savior especially in your youth. This life in itself is futile, vanity, vapor. It is a fleeting moment that passes faster than you can imagine. That's his point. It's coming quick. Blink of an eye. Our hope is not in this life alone, but in the eternal perspective placed within our heart and a promise of an eternity with a loving and gracious Jesus Christ, our Savior, as we follow him now, today. The next I'll look at is the vanity of wisdom and folly. We are going to go late, so just relax. It's going to be okay. The vanity of wisdom and folly. I'll be brief on this because we looked at it pretty in depth last week. If you weren't here, you can listen to it online. But he, gives, he kind of gives himself over to both, uh, which Sam kind of mentioned that he's going to do in this, in this book. In verse 12 of chapter 2, it says, Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. Again, interesting decisions that he's made in his life, but this is what he's done, and he's truly gone all in with wisdom, gone all in with folly, gone all in with madness. He even says where it sounds like he was just like getting drunk and laughing for days. It's kind of the depiction it gives in chapter 2. He really sold into it. Uh, and both seem to have their perks. In verse 18 of chapter 1, he, he kind of pre-warns us that for, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And there's certainly a truth in that. The more we know, the more grief that it can bring. And one, a saying I really like, if ignorance is bliss, then wisdom is folly. If, if, it's, if it's better to be, or if you're happier when, you're, when you don't have any knowledge, then it's kind of silly to, be, to seek knowledge. It's, anyway, I like the saying. If we are only living for today and have no thought of eternity, then a foolish person really will have much, a much less stressful life, right? Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Go into the folly, we don't, right? We have an eternal perspective that's been placed into our hearts. He also warns at the end of the book, in chapter 12, verse 12, he says, of making many books, there is no end. And much study wearies the body. Those of you who have just gone through some testing time might be like, yeah, it, it wearies the body to study. It's a good thing to grow in our knowledge, 
And we want to pray that God increases our wisdom, as we talked again about last week that James tells us, to ask God for wisdom. Those of you who lack wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you. But don't let yourself grow weary or depressed in your quest for wisdom or knowledge. The more we know, the more we know how little we know. Say that ten times fast. And here he also concludes, though, in verse 13 through 14 of chapter 2, I saw that wisdom is better than folly. That might have been a surprise to you. Wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads. It's helpful to have eyes in your heads. While the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. So again, he's just going to go right back to death. But his point is that it's better to see clearly. And wisdom is going to give us the eyes to see. As Sam pointed out last week, true wisdom is not only about common sense or an understanding of the world around us and how things work. It's rooted in a fear of the Lord, right? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. It's better, and what that's really about is it's better to trust and to have faith in one who is greater than we will ever be, who always has more wisdom, always has more knowledge, and that's ultimately where I want to rest. So I want, and this applies to every vanity that we looked at, If we are seeking those things in themselves, we are grasping at smoke. Here, especially with wisdom, because I think, again, applies to all of them. This is true wisdom, true understanding, to not only have great knowledge, but to understand your limits, and then to hope in something greater than yourself, to say, hey, I know where I end, and where, okay, I, I can't grab any more, I can seek it, but ultimately I say, God, I trust you. I trust you. I trust your wisdom above my own. I trust your ways above my own. And our final, the final close of the book, as we close slowly, verse 12, or sorry, chapter 12, verse 13 through 14. This is the very last verses. This is how the book concludes, and that's what we'll use to start our conclusion. Now all has been heard. So he's saying, okay, you've heard it all. You've heard everything that he's been through. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So no matter what we're seeking, no matter what pursuit we have, the point is fear the Lord. Again, meaning put your trust and hope in him above everything else as your foundation, as your rock that you build everything on. All other pursuits will lead to only vanity. They're futile apart from him. You can find no pleasure apart from God, not even in eating, not in your work, not in your labor, not in your seeking knowledge, not in your accomplishments, not in your pleasure. Nothing can truly satisfy us apart from God. And I read this as a conclusion uh, or a summary of the book I found quite helpful. So I'll read this to hopefully help you guys just wrap your brains around what this book is about and hopefully get you excited about reading it in the next day or two or week or over our summer break. God has included this strange book in the Bible because it allows us to examine the wrong ideas alongside the good and true ones. 
It faces us with the pessimistic and fatalistic view of life, showing us the best that human thinking can provide. It tells us that if we don't understand the meaning of life from heaven's angle and from the angle of the next world, we finish up, we reach our end, disillusioned, disappointed, and depressed. And with that, I want to encourage you to read this book. And as you do, to ask God to reveal more about you. Ask him and ask yourself, what is my true pursuit in this life? Do I hold on to an earthly view? Is human philosophy what I really rest my hope in? Are the vanities of this life my identity? Or do I hold to a Christ-centered view of myself, that I truly am a new creature in Christ, and I have been called into eternity as a child of God through my Savior and Lord Jesus. This book forces us to face the reality of this world, showing everything in this world to be futile, vapor, vanity, meaningless. Yes, we can find joy and pleasure in fleeting moments here and there in ourselves and of ourselves, but apart from God, they will all turn to ash and emptiness and leave us in a greater state of emptiness than when we began. As you read through this book, I hope soon, pray that God would reveal your own heart to you and show you where you are choosing folly over wisdom, seeking the vanities of this life apart from God, so that you may be more reorient, that God may reorient your heart and your life to a worldview that is Christ-focused and God-fearing above all else as the foundation that you build your life on. I want to invite the band to come up as we prepare to close with one final song. And as they come up, I'll pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much, Father, that the Bible is complex. The Bible has so much to offer, so much to show us. And this book is a good example of something that fits a little outside the the mode or the mold of what we would typically expect. I pray, Father, that you use it mightily Today, to encourage people, to excite people, to want to get into this book, to read it, and to hear from you, and to have a better understanding of themselves before you, and their own pursuits, and their own desires, and that they would maybe reaffirm a foundation with you, and you alone, and you above all, above all pursuits, above all pleasures, above all accomplishments, above all gains that we build our foundation on you as our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'll invite you now to stand as we close with a final worship song.